This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. This episode of The Different Kind of Human Project is sponsored by Flow Dance Academy Christchurch. different kind of human project where we talk to people who are neurodiverse, diverse and just plain different. This is a space to celebrate diversity and hear from people who are intentionally living outside the box of society's constraints. In this show we're going to be talking to Chris Sibley about his past as a gay man in America who experienced tensions between his spiritual calling, the kind of work he was drawn to as a neurodiverse person and his sexuality as a gay man. So welcome Chris. Thank you for having me today. I've been wanting to interview you for a little while. We've spoken, both of us, about our pasts. We're a pretty similar age, and we come out of an era, for me, the Maggie Thatcher era in the UK. And for you, was it the time of Ronald Reagan? Yep, that's yep. right. Yep. Okay, so both of us are aware that we lived in times quite different from today's. Uh, and so can you tell me just a little bit about what that was like for you? So I was born in uh, 1967, um, and I'm the youngest uh, in a family of four. And I was also born in Birmingham, Alabama, which was just coming off of the civil rights movement. And the reason I bring that up is because uh, my siblings would have, you know, uh, come of age in that 1960s counterculture sort of period of American history. And that's what I was exposed to as a young child. Um and because I tended to look up to my siblings uh, due to the huge age difference, they were 10, 9, and 8 years older than me, um, that period of history really sort of cemented itself in my mind. Um, and I was always, you know, trying to get their attention and to get their approval. So it was that period of music that I fell in love with and, and still enjoy today. Um, and then... The 1970s were sort of a continuation of the 1960s in, in America politically and with um, the social movements of the time and the civil rights movement sort of carrying on. But they sort of lost their footing a little bit um, after the achievements that they'd made in the 1960s. But unlike my siblings, I was raised uh, with what I would call hope. Um, so there was a huge movement of seeing the the conflicts of civil rights in Alabama as being something that was in the distant past, even though it was only a decade ago. Um, and there was a huge desire to move on from that and to sort of create a new society um, that was built around equality. A and that's what I was raised on. That's what I was taught in school. And so I applied that um, foolishly in hindsight um, to my family and to my peers, expecting that that would transfer to other areas of life, which for me was about my sexuality and about my neurodiversity. So 
that what was happening in Alabama and the rights that were gained was around it was around race, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So your your thinking was that this would be transferable across to other areas of minority status. Yeah, it just seemed like a natural flow that you would go from this racial inequality to to women's rights and to LGBT rights as well. Um, and so I had a hard time, especially as a young gay person, understanding why that didn't happen. And when I had people that I grew up, you know, loving, um, cousins, aunts, uncles, extended family, and even friends that weren't making those leaps of transition, I'm like, what's going on? Why is this, why are we getting these roadblocks? Because um, it did seem natural to me that, that those rights would be sort of transferable. Um, and that once that movement had started, it would spread much more easily than it did. So it was a surprise to you that this didn't occur. And it was around the time of Ronald Reagan. When did he come along? Yeah, so when I started getting politically active and really sort of involved uh, in those kind of movements was in my high school years. Um, uh, and I was very opinionated. History was my favorite subject and um, was always debating politics um, with people. And at that time, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party weren't so divided as they were. So I supported and my family supported Jimmy Carter when, when he ran against Ronald Reagan um, the first time. But then the second time, um, it was uh, Dukakis. Um, and I switched, like most of the South did at the time. That's when the South went from being blue Democratic to being red. And I voted for Reagan. Um, that was my first election. Um, Though I didn't agree with everything the Republican Party stood for at the time, no party supported gay and lesbian rights um, at that time. So it seemed sort of a toss-up. Um, That's and, similar to the UK in actual fact yeah. during Mag Maggie Thatcher's era. Obviously, the Conservative Party were bringing in things like Section 28 and Section 29 and removing any books to do with the rainbow community from schools. And you couldn't have positive representations in local government. Um, police were keeping registers of known gay people and things like that. Yeah. But in fact, both parties weren't particularly cool on it. Right. And I was in Alabama where, you know, it was a felony. So any kind of sort of sexual activity with, with a person of the same sex was, was illegal. Um, and I was a virgin until I was 21. So I was quite, um, what's the word, uh, chase. <laughs> um, and that aspect of my sexuality, though, I had been aware of it from the time I was in kindergarten. Um, and the thing that really sort of changed things for me politically um, was HIV and AIDS came onto the scene in the 80s. Um, and I was raised in a very conservative uh, religious environment. Uh, so I very firmly believed at the time that it was a sin, um, that... Uh, that I was going to go to hell. I believed that that AIDS was punishment from God. Um, I went through um, uh, reparative therapy, which I'm not sure is that is what that they call it here in New Zealand? Therapy. Conversion therapy, yeah. Yeah. So trying to change my sexuality to being heterosexual, uh, which obviously didn't work. Uh, and part of the problem, too, that I had in in functioning in, in what I would call a, a healthy way at the time was more about my attention deficit disorder, so my yeah. my neurodiversity. 
So I had a huge um, problem academically uh, with being able to manage myself um, in productive ways and, and achieve the things that I was able to achieve intellectually in the way grades were at the time. And just like with gay rights, you know, just coming to a head at that time, mainly in my opinion because of HIV and AIDS, um, they were just becoming aware of, of people with ADHD. Um, and my um, pediatrician as a child had even suggested that I had ADHD, but they knew so little about it at the time. There wasn't really a recommended therapy for it. Um, and my mother, like a lot of mothers, was the kind of person that it, if you couldn't absolutely prove that something was true and it was bad, then she didn't want it to be true. <laughs> yeah. So it was sort of left to the to the wayside, which is reflected in my grades um, growing up. And the way all of that sort of meshed together is that um, everything that I wanted to do in life as a career was something that I was told I couldn't do as a gay man um, or that would be extremely difficult for me to do as somebody with ADHD. What kind of things were they? So I wanted to be a teacher. Um, I wanted to be in the military, which obviously wasn't allowed at the time. Um, And because of my religious, spiritual nature, I wanted to be a minister, which also was was not something that was really on the table either. So all of those are very academic, except for the the military. Um, you know, but being a teacher, you you really in the states you need to be able to to get your master's degree, um, especially if you want to teach high school. Um, and to be a minister, you have to get your your master's at least from seminary, and of course they prefer you to have your PhD. Um, and that's not even bringing in the sexuality stuff. So. Um, the other way that ADHD impacted me is, I mean, those are just three of the things that I wanted to do. Um, I've always been very jealous of people that are sort of born knowing what they want to do. You know, this is what I want to do. And they say it when they're four years old and they still want to do it when they graduate from high school and they go on and they do it. I wanted to do everything. Um, and I had a horrible time at university because, um, I just took every single class that I could possibly take about anything I would take. And that drove my parents in, you know, crazy. At Flow Dance Academy, you'll find a positive and safe environment for movers of all ages. We welcome and respect all dance and yoga lovers and include all body shapes, experience levels, genders, sexualities, races, and religions. We offer classes in Hatha Yoga, preschool dance, junior and senior level ballet, jazz, contemporary, hip-hop, musical theatre and also flow fusion for advanced to professional dancers combining neoclassical, lyrical, jazz and contemporary dance. Contact us at Flow Dance Academy to book your free trial in Christchurch. Come join us, be who you want to be, embrace it and let it flow. You're listening to The Different Kind of Human Project. And today my guest is Chris Sibley. We're talking about his time growing up in the south of America as a gay man who also had ADHD. So you took every kind of class going. Yes, I went to a a private Baptist university in Alabama um, in Birmingham where I had grown up. 
um, and you only needed a uh, hundred and twenty eight semester hours to graduate. Uh, when I finished, I had three hundred and twelve. <laughs> so, do you think that's an ADHD thing? Do you think it's a not sure what I want to do with myself thing, or just I love being at, at university kind of thing? It was definitely I loved being at university. Um, unlike high school, when you're at university, you get to pretty much choose what you want to study. But I had so many interests um, that I couldn't like make a career choice. It's mm-hmm. You know, because if I chose to be a teacher, then I was giving up being in the military or I was giving up being a minister. I was giving up being an EMT. Just every sort of career path that had appealed to me that I really, really wanted to do. And that's to me, that's ADHD. It's like, oh, I really, really, really want to do this. No, I really, really want to do this. It's like the, you know, oh, there's a squirrel. <laughs> well, the great thing is that I know your history and I know that you did actually get to go on and achieve several of those, yeah. that you have been a teacher. You did go in the military and that you actually did do, uh, have part of your career be around being a spiritual person. Can you tell me about how those came about? Yeah, I um, had what I call sort of it wasn't quite a decade, but I call it the lost decade. Um, my last year at university, I went uh, to London to, to study for a semester. Um, and while I was there is when the Berlin Wall opened. Um, and that was like the most amazing thing I had ever experienced. Um, it was by pure luck that I had booked a trip to go to Berlin um, that November and that's when the guards got up and they were giving roses to everybody and they they opened uh, Checkpoint Charlie and and all the different crossings and let people through. And it was just amazing to see the Iron Curtain open up like that and and to see families that hadn't seen each other in 60 years reunited and to be a part of that. And I had a huge depression after that was over because I'm like, I've seen the most amazing thing I could ever see in my whole life. And I'm only 22. What what can happen now? Um, and that's part of, you know, growing up in the Cold War, that constant fear of nuclear war. Yeah. And and you also, I don't think people get today how much of, or maybe they do with what's going on in the Ukraine at the moment, but how much empathy we had. And, and you really wanted those people to be free um, and, and to have the kind of life that we felt like that we had in the States at the time and that I imagine New Zealanders felt that they had at that time as well. Um, so there was just this huge joy about it. Um, and I didn't know what to do with myself. I graduated. I'd had this amazing experience in Berlin. And um, I was like, what do I do now? Because um, you were blocked in a number of ways because of your sexuality. Yeah. Essentially from going. Could you be a teacher at that time with your sexuality? Not and be out of the closet. No. And I'm not the kind of person that can not be out of the closet because I'm a terrible liar. <laughs> so I remember at the time um, you couldn't get a mortgage for a house if you were out um, you could get kicked out of your job if you were out. Um, I remember being kicked out of guest houses, going and staying yeah. when they realized um, uh, all manner of different discriminations were perfectly legal. Yeah, and, and so you that, were just automatically assumed to be a sexual predator. That's right. Especially if you were going into teaching. Yeah. Um, and, and and you still see residual effects of that today. Um, you know, one of the things that I hear around schools all the time is, you know, oh, so-and-so is a pedo. Um and there's just this real negative attitude about gay sexuality that sees as a predatory, um, which unfortunately is not the case. And pedophilia and homosexuality are not remotely 
alike. So no, one's two complete... to do with an adult consensual relationship yeah. and another one's to do with sexual attraction to children, completely different. Yeah. And the really frustrating and sad aspect of that is that um, LGBT people tend to be the predominant victims of, of pedophiles. Yeah. And so, also that um, straight uh, men tend to be the predominant predators. Yeah. Been, yeah. Yeah. Which is something people don't understand because they see it through a sexual lens rather than what it's really about, which is power, which most abusive relationships, whether it's rape, uh, pedophilia or abuse in a marriage is about power rather than about sex. It is. And I remember Claudia Black, who's done a lot of work on trauma, just as a segue. I remember her saying, if someone hits you with a rolling pen, you don't call it cooking, do you? So if somebody's <laughs> right. violent towards you, you know, with uh, with sexual organs or whatever, you wouldn't call that sex. It's actually about power and abuse. Yeah. And of course, we're always seen through the lens of sex, mm. not about uh, relationship, attraction, um all ma- you know, actually being uh, attracted to the divine masculine or the divine feminine as it's expressed through different human beings. We're always seen in terms of really quite basic sex terms as as rainbow people or gay people, uh, which is severely disappointing, but it continues to be the case. Right. Um, so tell me about the, the the teaching thing did happen, though. You actually are working well, as a the, teacher. Well, the first thing that happened was the military. Okay. So I reached a point um, after I finished university um, that I just got pissed off. And I'm like, all these things that I want to be able to do with my life, um, people tell me that I can't, which which creates a fear. So, you know, I had a fear of, well, what if I do go on and do these things? And I was like, I'm just going to do it and see what happens. Um, Bill Clinton had been elected president by that time um, and had instituted Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I thought, you know, this is a, a clue for me to go in and and put my money where my mouth was, basically, and, and make an effort to do the things that I had wanted to do. I didn't want to be 90 years old and look back on my life thinking, oh, I wish I had joined the military and not had, had done it, which is what had happened to me in school with sports because I loved sports um, and was very active in football, baseball, basketball, and on the swimming team. But I was such a perfectionist, um, which is part of ADHD as well, um, and that merged with my sexuality in the sense that whenever I made a mistake, I thought my gayness was showing. So, you know, if I screwed up on the football field or if I screwed up on the baseball field, um, I thought, well, I'm doing, you know, I made that mistake because I'm I'm a sissy, I'm gay. Because you had a lot of internalized homophobia. You, Clearly, if you're yeah. going through conversion therapy and things like yeah. that quite willingly, yeah, yeah, that, that shows... So did you get beyond the internalized homophobia at a certain point when it came to, I'm just going to get on and do these things? The sports had, had been left behind. Yeah. You'd, you'd lost in some ways around around that, and you weren't going to do it this time. You'd had enough. I think that I'm still trying to get beyond that. Um, but I started to move in a much more positive direction, um, though it was a little bit self-destructive as well because one of the things that – um, my family had always said to me is, even though I don't have a problem with you being gay, why do you have to tell people that you're gay? Um, and I could not get them to understand that that you can't not if if you can't not tell people <laughs> who you are. Right, you'll be you're lying or you're telling the truth, and yeah. there's no way to be dishonest about your sexuality without lying about it. Yeah. Um, so it was a don't, don't ask, don't tell era, and so people were quite imbued with that themselves. They thought this was, wasn't such a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. So I joined the military, um, 
unfortunately, when I joined, I was 28, so I wasn't – at that time, they had a, an age limit on being an officer. So even though I had a university degree, I could not be an officer. So I went in as an enlisted person, which I actually ended up preferring anyway. Um, and that led um, – to me trying to fulfill, to uh, sort of kill two birds with one stone and fulfill the ministry aspect, my religious aspect. Um, so I chose to be a chaplain's assistant, and which is an enlisted person's uh, role in the U.S. military where you sort of function as a bodyguard um, to the chaplain who's not allowed to carry a weapon. So I carried the weapon. He didn't. So it was my job to protect the chaplain, which could be a person of any faith. So it could have been a Jewish chaplain, a Muslim chaplain, a Christian chaplain. They could have been Catholic or Baptist or Episcopalian, um, which I found interesting. I've always enjoyed studying religion. Um, so I chose that as my role. And I thought, you know, everything that America does with its military is not necessarily just. But I thought if I'm defending the minister, <laughs> then maybe that'll sort of diminish any of the harm that I might do as a soldier. Um, fortunately, under Bill Clinton, I didn't have to – all the missions that I was involved in were humanitarian relief missions. Um, I went overseas to El Salvador and did humanitarian work there. Um, and then I did lots of military service in the States. It was George and, W. coming along afterwards that – Yes, and yeah. and I knew – and. You could call it a lucky guess, but I instinctively knew that we would be going to war. As, and this is before 9-11. So as soon as he was el- technically elected, based on the Supreme Court ruling of 2000, <laughs> um, I knew we would be going to war. Um, and that sort of led to me rethinking my commitment to the military, not because I was afraid to go to war, but because I didn't want to be involved in an unjust war. Mm. Um, and, and I foresaw something like Vietnam happening again, which, of course, is exactly what happened with with Iraq and them lying about weapons of mass destruction and being tor- you know, in the turmoil of Afghanistan for 20 years. Um, and, and I didn't want to be privy to that, whereas under Bill Clinton, we had, you know, um, done humanitarian missions like what I did in El Salvador, and we had protected the people, um, oh, I forget, the Albanian Muslims mm-hmm. in Serbia which to me was a, a noble conflict to be involved in, sort of preventing the genocide that was happening there and very similar to what's happening in Ukraine with Russia today. And the military was great. I enjoyed doing it. Uh, I, I did very well in my promotions and in the medals that I earned. But don't ask, don't tell doesn't work. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been such an interesting interview that I think we have to get you back for the second part of your story because you leaving the military is only the uh, beginning of uh, of the next chapter. So uh, we will have you back, um, find out the rest of your story bringing you up to today. I just want to thank you so much for coming into the studio today and being so candid and telling us such an interesting story. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to talking to you next time. That brings us to the end of our program. We hope you've enjoyed listening to our show. You can listen to this show again on the Plains FM website, Spotify, or on Apple's podcast platform. Check us out on Facebook and Twitter. So bye for now. I'm Annie Southern. We look forward to having you with us for another show in a fortnight. <laughs>